Growing up in Los Angeles, just about everyone has their celebrity encounter story. And we by no means idolize celebrities, but you see someone who's a well-known public figure, it's going to stand out, you'll remember it. Now I remember one such run-in, and strangely enough, it wasn't even in L.A., we were in Tokyo. Andrew and I were there in 2010, we were at a night market, and of all places, we ran into a guy named Rupert Grint, who at the time was in the well-known Harry Potter movies, well-known actor in those movies. We just saw him there walking around by himself, so we said hi. Now... I remember that meeting because the circumstances were so unusual, but I can guarantee he does not remember that meeting. That's the experience of all public figures. Loads of people watch them from afar. Some even get to know them from afar. Meanwhile, that public figure doesn't know these people at all. So whenever they happen to meet, there's no chance that that public figure will remember that encounter. Rather, to most celebrities, people are simply fans, Nameless, faceless fans. They pretend to connect today on social media, but there's no real connection. You know that, right? It's not two-way. At the end of the day, that celebrity doesn't care about you individually or even know that you exist. You're just a follower, a subscriber, a fan. That's it. The same goes for many rulers or politicians. They might pretend to care about their constituents, but have different ideas. They'll attend a a meet-and-greet, a photo op. They don't really know these people. They... They don't know a single individual there. They never will. By and large, they don't see individuals but just faceless voting blocks. In a sense, though, this is understandable. Public figures are limited by time and space and knowledge. They can't possibly know millions of people. They can't remember millions of names and faces. I think we would agree that civil leaders should at least try and be accessible and personal. But we're all limited in the number of meaningful personal relationships we can have. Now, I simply bring this up, though, to form a contrast, because even in his time on earth, Christ Jesus was so very different. In really an amazing way, he was a personal and accessible Savior. Not a single person was nameless or faceless to him. So just consider the earthly ministry of Jesus. In many senses of the word, he was a celebrity, like the The Beatles at the height of the British invasion, crowds would just flock to him, clamoring to touch him, speak to him, hear from him. And while Jesus did give himself to the twelve in a special way, he did not ignore or shun the crowds. He did not treat them like nameless, faceless followers. Rather, Jesus spent much of his active ministry like literally in the crowds. He was fully accessible. Anyone with a little bit of boldness could work their way up to the front of the crowd and speak to him. Those desperate enough could cut a hole in a roof to get to Jesus, and he wouldn't turn them away. He came to minister to people. And furthermore, Jesus did not cater to the elite of society. Celebrities and politicians create their own little social circles, believing themselves more important. They can't be bothered to mingle with the rabble. But not Jesus. He mostly turned away from the elite ruling class and spent most of his time with the common people. Overall, you could find Jesus dwelling with the rich and the poor, nobles and peasants, ignorant and the educated, young and old, male and female, Jew and Gentile, healthy, unhealthy, righteous, unrighteous. Jesus was not just a religious guru surrounded by an entourage who would would keep people away from him. 
The disciples were not his bodyguards or bouncers. The one time they tried to prevent little children from coming to Jesus, he rebuked them. There was a time to retreat from the crowds, seeking rest or or deeper investment in the twelve. But Jesus was not some monastic hiding away in the desert, and he couldn't be found. He, He walked the streets of the very people he came to reach. And so in all, during his earthly ministry, Jesus was the epitome of a personal and truly accessible public figure. One moment, he might be speaking to a member of the Sanhedrin, the highest ruling authority of the Jews, but the next moment, he might be giving a ton of his time to this lone, single, Samaritan woman by a well. He cared about every person he met. And then beyond his earthly ministry, since he is the exalted Lord, Jesus actually has the capacity to know everyone. He actually does know every name, every face, every person ever. God is deeply personal, and he has made himself most accessible in the person of his son, Christ Jesus. God wants his people to seek him by faith, and in Christ, he can be found. This is good news, that we have a Savior who is not impersonal, not inaccessible, not untouchable. And we get to see really a double example of that this morning in our passage of Scripture. And that's found in Matthew chapter 9. So go ahead and take your Bibles to follow along Matthew chapter 9. And here we're entering the final section of a group of miracles Jesus performed that Matthew records in chapters 8 and 9. And in these two chapters, Matthew gives us a sampling of nine miraculous deeds Jesus performed all of which put on display his divine authority. And these showcase his power, his majesty, while while also providing lessons on faith. Matthew divides this account into three groups of three miracles each, divided by two little teachings on discipleship. This morning we, we begin the last triplet of miracles. And this one really drives it all home with the most powerful messianic witness of them all. It was long said in the Old Testament that the Messiah, when he comes, he would give speech to the mute, sight to the blind, life to the dead. That is what we see with this, these final three miracles. And these last miracles, Jesus is giving his strongest credentials. He really is the Messiah. And it starts in reverse order with our passage, the raising of the dead. Matthew 9, 18 through 26. This text is actually a double header, though, because it's like a two-for-one miracle. Sandwiched in the account of raising Jairus' daughter, we see that the healing of a woman who had been suffering for 12 years. This is not incidental or accidental. In God's providence, these two events really did occur like this, sandwiched in one another. And yet, in the inspired record, we get to see God's fingerprints and how they work together to accentuate just the power, the compassion, the accessibility of the Savior Christ, and while also teaching on the nature of true faith. So we want to behold this passage. It's a long one, so we'll read it as we go. That being said, Matthew's account is the shortest. You find this in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Matthew's the shortest. In typical fashion, he just summarizes the action, takes us, points us to Jesus, Mark is the action gospel. He gives us very little of the teaching of Jesus, but all the action. Matthew is the exact opposite. We get all the teaching, 
summarized action. This explains why Mark spends 23 verses for this one account, Matthew only nine. But we get the details here that matter most as Matthew fixes our attention on Jesus. That's what we want to see. So what we have here, you could say, are four scenes in an unfolding drama that, that teach us about Christ and faith in him. We're just going to watch it unfold. Four scenes in an unfolding drama to teach, about, teach us about Christ and faith in him. You can start first with this. <clears throat> Starts with a, a desperate man with astonishing belief. You can say that's the first scene. We have a, a desperate man with astonishing belief. Verse 18, we'll start reading. It says, while he was saying these things to them, a synagogue official came and bowed down before him. You stop there. Matthew's account, I mean, it's abbreviated. He doesn't even tell us this guy's name ever. We know, though, from Mark, from Luke, his name was Jairus. He's called here a ruler. But again, Mark makes even uh, clearer. He's not a civil ruler. He's a religious ruler. More specifically, he is the the ruler or the leader of the local synagogue there in Capernaum. And the synagogue was the focal point for the Jews outside of Jerusalem for community life and obviously religious life. So Jairus, he was a prominent community member and he was the top religious authority in the town. He was clearly part of the religious establishment. We've already seen, though, this religious establishment is starting to turn against Jesus. And so that makes what happens next quite unexpected, that this top religious figure in town comes up to Jesus and bows down, it says. He bows down before him. It speaks of laying prostrate. He's he's kissing the dirt. He just bows down before Jesus. And it's not that he was worshiping Jesus per se, but this was a customary way of showing reverence and respect It was a position of humility and submission. Very appropriate if you were begging someone for favor. That is exactly what he's doing. He came to Jesus to beg. Verse 18, while he was saying these things, a synagogue official came and bowed down before him and said, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. Now first, a quick technicality. Mark says that Jairus is daughter was at the point of death, meaning Jairus knew she was going to die any minute, and that's what prompted him to go run to Jesus. She came to her end, and we find in Mark, just moments later, messengers arrived saying, your daughter has died. Now, Mark has a lot of verses to spare. gives us all these details. Matthew is abbreviating in characteristic fashion, just like he did in chapter 8 with the healing of the centurion's servant. He makes no mention of all the messengers involved. He's just abbreviating. Same thing here. He condenses the account. He's combining the opening of the story with the messengers. For the sake of brevity, we just get kind of the gist of the situation. The gist of it was a man named Jairus had a daughter who was at the point of death and had just died. And it caused him to run to Jesus as a last-ditch effort for help, for healing. He appealed to Jesus to come and just lay his hand on her that she might live. You can sense the desperation in Jairus' appeal. Luke says she was his only daughter and that she was only 12 years old. And per Jewish culture, that's the age little ones entered into what they considered adulthood. So she was beginning her, her life. So much of her life was ahead of her. What afflicted her, we do not know. 
but her parents were obviously watching this tragedy unfold before them, and there was nothing they could do to stop it. It's like a train that reaches the end of a track, that they had reached the end of ancient medicine. There's nothing more that, that could be done for her at that time. There's nowhere else for them to go to get help for their daughter. Hospitals didn't exist. That's it. There's nothing else they could do until they considered Jesus, who happened to live in the same town these days in Capernaum. That's worth mentioning that God is sovereign over such tragedy. We know he's in the business of causing all things to work together for good. Not all things are good, but he sure can cause them to work together for good. He does that in a million different ways. One of those ways sometimes is to humble people, to use tragedy and the resulting desperation to just stop the proud and the self-reliant in their tracks, to force them to look up, to make them acknowledge God and cry out to him. More than once, God has used suffering to elicit faith in people by which he then delivers. Tragedy is not good in this fallen world. But the birth of true faith is, is a good that can come out of it. And that seems to be what's happening here with Jairus. Desperation has sent him running to Jesus. Now, you study the scriptures, the gospels really well. It's not hard to conclude. Jairus knew Jesus. They're not strangers. Jesus, we've already learned, has made his new home base, Capernaum. He's been rejected from Nazareth. He now resides and ministers from Capernaum. Jairus here is the top leader, that the, you guess, I'd say senior pastor of the, the synagogue there in Capernaum. We've already learned from other gospels that, that by this time, Jesus, he had frequented that synagogue. He has taught there. He has healed there at the synagogue. So Jairus had to have heard Jesus. He had to have witnessed his mighty deeds. This would have included the healing of the royal official son in Capernaum. This would have included the healing of the centurion's servant in Capernaum. I mean, there's just already so much evidence that, that as this Jesus works the wonders of God, he must come from God. He must be the Messiah. That evidence was there. It was already clear, but the religious leaders were already unwilling to accept that conclusion because Jesus was not showing any support for them. He was rejecting them. And so the scribes, the Pharisees, the priests, at this point, they were already starting to put people out of the synagogue if they supported Jesus, John 12, 42. We don't know Jairus' heart, but if he had any hope in Jesus before this moment, it seems that that seed was prevented from germinating. It was smothered by fear of reprisal. That really openly confessing Jesus and his position could cost him his position. And before, that, that may have been enough to keep Jairus away from Jesus. I would bet that as his daughter got sick and was declining, I bet he thought about going to Jesus sooner, but maybe she'll recover. It's not worth the risk. Too risky. But now, look, he's, he's desperate. His daughter is perishing. And so none of those fears matter anymore. Tragedy drew out his faith, so he, he just runs up to Jesus. He bows down. It doesn't matter what anyone thinks at this point. He appeals to Jesus for help. And at this point, there's, there's no hint that he's disingenuous. There's really no shred of doubt or reservation. He comes and he appears to totally believe that if Jesus just comes 
and lays his hand on her. That's all you have to do. Just come and, and grab her. She will live. He believes that. He's confident in Christ and his power, and now he's, he's asking for it. Some have, have chided Jairus for having less faith than that Roman centurion in chapter 8 because he believed Jesus could heal his sick servant with just a word. He said, Jesus, you don't even have to show up. Just say the word, and my servant will be healed. And look, it, it might be true that Jairus had less faith. But nowhere does Scripture say that only fully grown, fully mature, great faith saves. The Lord's gates are open to all who come by faith, even if that faith is small and little and weak. But if it's true, it saves. And hence, there's no hesitation in Christ's response. Verse 19, it simply says, Jesus got up and began to follow him, and so did his disciples. There's no discussion. There's no qualifications. There's no rebuke. Just an immediate, compassionate response. Jesus got up and followed him. Now, of course, Jesus could have just said the word. She'd be raised. But I I think we have to think that the Lord knew this was going to be a special occasion. As of yet, despite all of his miracles that we've witnessed in this timeline, he's not yet raised anyone from the dead. The greatest messianic credential hasn't happened yet. So I think he knows it's time for him to issue his greatest calling card. So as Spurgeon comments, quote, The preacher steps down from his pulpit and becomes a visiting surgeon, taking his rounds, end quote. So off he goes. The disciples, they're along for the ride. They don't say or do anything here. They're just witnessing that one day they could testify. That includes, we've learned, the brand new disciple named Matthew. He's there now. He's, he's following along. He's the one who's writing this account. Matthew's along for the ride. They all are. So Jesus, Jairus, the disciples, they set off for Jairus' house. We learn that a large crowd is in tow. It's a busy day. But I'm sure, much to Jairus' frustration, his house would not be the first stop. Just imagine, you have a loved one who's dying. You call, an ambulance comes to take them to the hospital. You hop in, and you're on the way to the hospital to save their life, but then the ambulance makes a pit stop. You'd be outraged, like, we, we don't have time for this. We need to go to the hospital. If, if anyone but Jesus was driving, it would be incredulous to, to make a stop, get sidetracked. But as it turns out, the great physician had another divine appointment that day on the way. And so at this point, before we get to see what happens with Jairus' daughter, we, the story diverts to another patient with a different diagnosis. We started with a desperate man with astonishing belief. Second, a desperate woman with astonishing belief. And so a new scene emerges, and Matthew doesn't even have time for transitions. Verse 20, it says, And a woman who had been suffering from a hemorrhage for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his cloak. We go from a man, Jairus, to a woman, only we never learn her name in any of the Gospels. She's known by her condition. She had been suffering from a hemorrhage for 12 years. That word hemorrhage, it's literally just the Greek word for blood, the Greek word for flow, crammed together in one word, blood flow. It's the definition of a hemorrhage, some uncontrolled bleeding. And she's had this problem for 12 years. Now that tells us her condition was not life-threatening. She could live with it, but it was chronic. It wasn't getting any better. Luke 
tells us that she could not be healed by anyone. That's all he says. You have to remember, though, Luke was a physician. So he probably doesn't want to paint the medical community in a negative light. Mark doesn't care about that. And so Mark tells us straight, listen to Mark 5.26. He describes her condition, says, She had endured much at the hands of many physicians and had spent all that she had and was not helped at all, but rather had grown worse. And a lot of people still feel that way today about going to the hospital. And so she obviously had a serious affliction, whether this was menstrual or a tumor or something else. We just don't know. But she had bleeding that wouldn't stop. And at the time, nothing more could be done. Naturally, you can imagine this would have made her anemic and weak. If you've ever donated blood afterward, you might feel a little weak. So imagine just always donating blood. Every couple of days, you're donating blood. She's probably physically weak all the time. Physically, she was in a rough place. Socially, religiously, she was an outcast. To the Jews, this bleeding problem would have rendered her ceremonially unclean, according to the Old Testament law. There was a period of restoration after the bleeding stopped, but what if the bleeding never stopped? You would be perpetually unclean, and that she was. Others would not share a seat with her at risk of being unclean. She would have been refused access to anywhere on the temple grounds. She would have been barred from the local synagogue there in Capernaum. To make matters worse, again, according to Mark, this this situation impoverished her. She was left penniless. Look, we still know medical bills, medical debt, they're still the number one source of personal bankruptcy. Even after 2,000 years, this is still happening. Many, though, we we can sympathize with her plight. This, This still happens. People still suffer like this. Physically, she was drained. Spiritually, she was unclean. Socially, she was an outcast. Financially, she was bankrupt. This just sounds like a miserable condition. And after 12 years, she's scraping and clawing to improve her condition. It's only gotten worse. Do you know what that means? It means that she, too, was desperate, like really desperate. And here's how we see these two very different stories converge, that they both were made absolutely desperate by their affliction, their condition. Both came to the end of all human resources for their needs, yet both found their only hope and help in Jesus. For this woman, again, it's safe to assume she had heard the stories of Jesus who was healing people. And so upon finding an, account, uh, an opportunity to encounter him, she was going to take it. Verse 21, it says, uh, verse, we'll start at verse 20 again. Now, a woman who had been suffering from a hemorrhage for 12 years came up behind him, touched the fringe of his cloak, for she was saying to herself, if I only touch his garment, I will get well. This woman had been isolated by her condition We find in the story, she acts like someone who's accustomed to isolation. I mean, being unclean, she probably lived on the outskirts of town. She was probably treated like the leper from chapter 8. She was used to being a a nameless, faceless person in the crowd. I think this informs her strategy for encountering Jesus. In the past, how did every religious uh, leader treat her? 
without question, like, as unclean. She would have been shunned, told, get back. And so after 12 years of this, her reticence is understandable. Why, why should Jesus be any different? She knew there was no way she'd go, she could approach Jesus head on and just come up to him, bow down before him like Jairus, plead her case, like, there, there's no way that's going to happen, and she'll be rejected. So her plan involved stealth. She would use her skills at being unseen. She would slither her way through the crowd, make it up to Jesus. And she doesn't even need to talk to him. She does not even need to be seen in her mind. Rather, while he's, okay, he's on the move. He's walking with Jairus. All she has to do is touch him and she'll be healed. And not even just touch him, but touch his garment. And not even just his garment, verse 20 clarifies, it says she only needs to touch the fringe of his cloak. And literally, that's referring to the tassels Jewish males wore at the ends of their garments per Old Testament law. Jesus would have had them. So her plan was merely to touch one of the little tassels hanging off the end of his outer garment. Just, just touch one of the tassels. And she believes she would be healed. That's it. What do we make of this? Is this superstition? Does she believe, as some people have, that there are magical healing properties in the clothes of Jesus or holy men? But I'd say no, it does not appear her faith is in the clothing of Jesus. Her faith is in Jesus. I believe she's extrapolating from the stories she must have heard because everyone in Capernaum had to have heard at this point the healing of the leper. That is just, apart from the rising of the dead, that's, that's the top of the list. The healing of that leper was a huge deal. How did Jesus heal that leper? With just a touch. Jesus was willing to touch the unclean. Nobody touched a leper. You become unclean. But the amazing, amazing thing was that when Jesus touched that leper, he did not become unclean. Rather, his cleanness transferred to the leper. He became clean. He, he was healed. And so if Jesus could heal with a touch, I guess it stands to reason that touching Jesus could heal. If you had an illness and you've been going to the doctors for 12 years with no results, I bet you'd be embittered. You'd be at the end of your line. You'd have no more hope. You'd be dejected. You'd be totally pessimistic. But that, that's not what we get from her. Perhaps that's true with the medical field, but with Jesus, she appears hopeful. She's convinced in her mind, if she just touches him, that her 12-year incurable blood condition will be instantly healed. That is faith. Both of these stories already are showing us so much about the nature of true faith, even of great faith. There's more to consider about that, but first we need to see, start seeing how these two stories resolve. More to see. So it starts with this. Third, a daughter saved by faith. After the setup of these two stories and their desperate afflictions, we see the first resolution, a daughter saved by faith. Verse 22, it says, But Jesus, turning and seeing her, said, Daughter, take courage. Your faith has made you well. At once a woman was made well. Matthew really cuts to the chase here. And Mark, we learn that when 
this woman touched Jesus, it says power went forth from him. And so he turned around and asked, who touched my garments? This exasperated the disciples because, like, there's a giant crowd around you. Like, everybody's touching you. What do you mean, who touched you? But Jesus was not asking in ignorance. He then looked up to see the woman who had touched him. And that's where Matthew picks things up. Jesus turns, looks at her, speaks to her. Why is he doing this? This woman was healed the moment she touched Jesus. Matthew sums it up. He says that once the woman was made well, but Mark clarifies the strict chronology. The moment she touched him, this happened. Mark 5, 29. It says immediately the flow of her blood was dried up. And she felt in her body that she was healed of her affliction. That's the moment she touched him. Look, countless people, it seems like, were pressing up against Jesus in this slow march, this crowd moving to Jairus' house. They all weren't healed of whatever afflicted them. That Christ did not have a magical touch. He did not have magical clothes. But Jesus immediately knew one touch was different. Because one touch came from faith, true faith. And so he turns and calls her out. Why does he call her out? She has been healed. The other gospels make clear at this point she's trying to slip away. She just is happy to to be on her way. Why not just, just let her go in peace? But you see, Jesus is trying to let her go in real peace. So first, Jesus wanted her healing to be made public for her own sake that she might receive a full restoration. Because remember, her suffering was not just physical, but social. If nobody knew that she was healed, she would remain a pariah. But now all might know that the Lord had made her clean, just like the leper. And so her pathway back into society and and the religious society was paved. She went to Jesus for healing, but she received a, a holistic restoration As is always the case, God's grace is bounding to sinners. He always gives us even more than we ask for. A second reason Jesus called her out is just that she might feel the love of God through the compassion of the Savior. What does he say to her? He says, daughter, take courage. There's no rebuke. There's no sting. It's just terms of endearment. He says this as if to put his heart on his sleeve, that she might know he's different. She is not a nameless, faceless crowd member to him. She really was unwell and unclean and even unrighteous, as we all are. But look, Jesus came for unwell, unclean, unrighteous sinners. And he recognizes all who come to him by faith as sons and daughters. Back back at chapter 9, verse 2, the beginning of this chapter, he says the same thing to the paralytic. He says, take courage, son. Now it is, take courage, daughter. He said that because he could sense her fear. She was not used to acceptance, only rejection. She had faith, but it was mixed with fear. This little word of encouragement from the Lord was meant to dispel that fear and bring her incipient faith to maturity, to fruition. And then third, Jesus called her out because he, just, he seeks to highlight true faith wherever it is found. He wants it to be put, on, put a spotlight on it. Let it be known that it was not magic or superstition at work. 
This was his power working through her faith. And we should point out that Christ's healings are not conditioned on a person's faith. There are many instances in the Gospels where people are healed irrespective of their personal faith. Like No mention was made of the faith of the centurion's servant. And pretty soon, I, I trust you know how this story goes, we're going to see the raising of Jairus' daughter from the dead. She was dead, had nothing to do with her faith. Jesus healed by his sovereign will. But at the same time, sometimes seeing great faith elicited his great mercy, whereby he was sure to meet great faith with great deliverance. Jesus wanted her to know, and everyone else, that her faith made her well. And so another one-liner from Spurgeon, he says of this verse, quote, And thus he put the crown on the head of her faith, because her faith had already set the crown on his head, end quote. Jesus recognizes those who have crowned him by faith. But this goes beyond healing, though, because Jesus chooses an interesting word. He says, your faith has made you well, but that phrase, made you well, it's not the normal word for physical healing or restoration. Single word in the Greek, sozo, almost always translated saved or for salvation. You could say, your faith has saved you. Now, there are some times where this word can speak of a a physical restoration, but we're left to wonder, is a double entendre intended? You see that in, for example, Luke 7.50. Jesus is speaking to a repentant prostitute. At first, he tells her, your sins are forgiven. Then he says the exact same phrase, your faith has made you well, or your faith has saved you. No healing was involved. Clearly, he meant a spiritual connotation by that word. Your faith has saved you. It's the same in Luke 17, 19. Jesus had just healed 10 lepers, all of them. He just cleansed 10 lepers. But only one of them returned to thank him, to worship him. And to that one leper alone, Jesus said the same thing. Your faith has made you well. Your faith has saved you. Now, the guy was already healed. All of the 10 lepers were healed, irrespective of their faith, by the way. But it seemed like Jesus was drawing a spiritual connection. Your faith has saved you. Look, sometimes faith is a catalyst for healing, sure. But always faith is a catalyst for salvation. That is a lesson made crystal clear in the New Testament, that faith is not always required for healing, but faith is most definitely always required for salvation. And that is the greater restoration Jesus came to provide. I think it's safe to conclude, therefore, that the Lord ultimately intended to show this woman and and everyone else that his power alone can heal. And not just the body, but also the soul. He came to deliver us from death. And you realize physical death is only part of that problem. Your sickness, your suffering, your illness, that's just, those are minor symptoms compared to the threat of eternal death, which comes about because of our spiritual death. In sin, our our souls are cut off from God. We're spiritually dead. Jesus came to save, to bind up, not just broken bodies, but broken souls. And through his own atoning death and resurrection, he would give new life spiritually to the dead. Again, we still need to reflect on how these lessons impact us, but 
I think first, let's just see how this story concludes. Because after we see this, this first daughter saved by faith, we get back to and see the other daughter raised to life. And now Jesus, he's going to give us the, the ultimate example of what he came to do. And so third, a daughter saved by faith. Fourth, a daughter raised to life. The fourth scene, a daughter raised to life. Look at verse 23. Matthew, again, there's still no time for a transition. He's right back to Jairus' story. We're instantly transported to Jairus' house. It says verse 23, when Jesus came into the official's house, and saw the flute players and the crowd in noisy disorder. Just stop there for a moment. You know, arriving at, at Jairus' house, he shows him there's this chaotic scene. Western funerals are quiet affairs. Just out of respect, those in attendance, they speak in hushed tones. Everyone's quiet. No, no one's really making any noise. Soft music plays. It's just a somber tone reflecting sincerity. Not so for Jewish funerals. They, they were the opposite of quiet. Matthew calls it a noisy disorder. So first, they would hire professional mourners called wailing women. And they did not even have to know the dearly departed. Their job was just to come and weep and wail as if it was their loved one who had died. In addition, they would hire musicians. Here it's flute players. They were playing loud, dissonant music to reflect the confusion of grief. The Talmud later stated that for burial, even the poorest Jew had to have at least two flute players and one wailing woman. Jairus, being wealthy, prominent, I mean, he had to have many. This would have been just a noisy, wild, chaotic scene. You still see examples of Middle Eastern Grief and lamentation, it's, it's, it's loud. It's not quiet. This little girl had not been dead long, but the fact is their family knew she was about to die. They had clearly already made preparations for the mourners to be there. They knew she was dying and, and going to die that day. So a large crowd is assembled. I mean, Jairus is the community leader. They're there to pay their respects. But none of this was going to go the way they expected that day. Verse 24, Jesus says, talking to the crowd, Leave, for the girl has not died, but is asleep. Then it says, and they began laughing at him. I think you can tell these people weren't real mourners, because look how quickly they transitioned from, from crying to laughing. But they're just flabbergasted by Christ's ridiculous statement. I mean, they could tell the difference between sleep and death. She's, she's not sleeping. Anyone could wake her up. She has died. What Jesus said was preposterous, it was insulting. But unlike Jairus and the woman from before, these people have no eyes of faith. They could not understand what Jesus meant. Because Jesus knew well she was dead. And look, he's not just using sleep as merely a euphemism for death. It's more than that. He was communicating his power over death. In other words, the thing we call death is nothing more than sleep to Jesus. It's just like he said regarding Lazarus in Luke 11, or John 11, 11. He says, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go that I may awaken him out of sleep. The point is, we view sleep as a temporary state and death as a permanent state. 
but, but not to Jesus. Death is just as temporary as sleep to him. That's the point. Death is not a permanent state to the one who holds the keys to life and death. And so Jesus is going to now show that. It's expected, sadly, that the people laugh at him and mock him because they don't know him. And look, people still do that today. They think at best Jesus was a teacher and maybe a healer, maybe a prophet, but he's not the son of God. He does not have power over the grave. He did not rise from the grave. They ridicule such claims. But I trust many of you here today have have tasted and seen the Lord is the risen Lord. He has power over life and death. You've already experienced the down payment of that in new birth. Don't doubt his power. Can I just make a quick little tangent side note here for believers? Don't abandon your loved ones to perdition, your unsaved loved ones. I think sometimes Christians can be like these mourners where you have an unsaved loved one. They're spiritually dead. They're far gone. They hate God. They mock Christianity. They want nothing to do with Christ. So you, you think there's, they're just so far gone, there's no chance they'll ever get saved and turn. And so you essentially just give up on them. You give up hope, and you consign them to eternal death. Like they're still living, but you know they're as good as going to hell. So you might even stop praying for them. You stop sharing with them. You stop contending with them. Instead, just just start mourning now. Call the flute players. This person is going to perish forever. But don't do that. Don't give up on God's power. We don't know how things will turn out. But remember that in reality, all of us were once that. We all once were just as spiritually dead. By definition, we had no life within us, no hope whatsoever. There's nothing we could do to change that condition. But it was God who made us alive, for by grace you have been saved. We don't know God's sovereign will for our loved ones, but don't bury them before the time. Don't give up hope. Don't stop praying. Don't doubt the Lord's power to raise the dead to new life. It's it's what he does. And getting back to this text, Jesus, he's going to now display, he's going to a taste of that power over death. Verse 25, it says, when the crowd had been sent out, First, he, he, he gets the mourners to leave. They're not going to be needed today. And these are strong words. It says sent out. That's ekbalo in the Greek. The same word used for casting out demons. He's, he's casting them out. He's like, get out, forcefully driving them out of the house, out of the air. Just disperse. You're not needed today. We learn in other Gospels that Jesus then takes the parents and his inner circle, Peter, James, and John, inside. They will be the only witnesses to what's about to happen that they might later testify. And then it says, simple as this, he entered and took her by the hand and the girl got up. Now, I wonder, like, did Matthew have a parchment shortage? Like, we could appreciate a few more details. But at the same time, really, like, what else can compare to the raw fact that she was dead and Jesus raised her from the dead? What, what more needs to be said? It's just the simple powerful truth. Let it sink in. Look here in in Matthew, we've already been witnessing so many miracles that the extraordinary is just starting to look ordinary. But it's not. And this was the first time in his ministry that he raised someone from the dead. And so this is not to be taken lightly. Doctors today can approximate power over disease through medicine. 
And scientists can approximate power over nature through physics. No one even comes close to power over death, and they never will. It's far beyond man's power, but not God's. He's the source of life, and that includes life from the dead. And that's what this daughter received. I know this is a sensitive subject, but, you know, stop, think for a second. How many times have you been stung by death, the death of a loved one? Even, when, even if your loved ones are believers, it, death still has a sting. And the older you get, just the more stings you get. It's the last ultimate reminder of everything wrong with this, this fallen, broken, sin-cursed world. One word sums it all up, death. But learn from the Lord. Death, death is not so final. It is not so permanent. And death is not the last word. All people will, in fact, be resurrected. Some to a resurrection of eternal life. Others to a resurrection of eternal death. That second death is the greatest judgment. It awaits all who remain in sin and rebellion against a holy creator God. But this is why Jesus came. This is why he came. Not just to heal bodies. He came to save from the second death. And he climbed up that cross bearing the equivalent of eternal death, undergoing the full brunt of God's righteous wrath toward our sin. But he made a full propitiation. He satisfied that wrath. He paid for it all on our behalf. And then he then proved his work was finished by rising from the dead himself. And his was the first true resurrection, for he rose to never die again. And now because of his finished work, those who are in him by faith, death is not the last word. Instead, he gives us a new last word, is victory. That comes from 1 Corinthians 15, 54 through 57. Listen, 1 Corinthians 15, 54. It says, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. We're meant to stand in awe at the power and the mercy of Christ, which this little girl just sampled. But better yet, we're meant to experience it ourselves as we come to faith in him. John eleven twenty five. Jesus said to Martha before raising Lazarus, he said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes, believes in me will live even if he dies. We're not worried about death anymore. So do you believe in him? Believe in him today. See how merciful and compassionate and accessible this Savior is. There, there are no nameless or faceless people to him on the planet. I mean, he has the hairs of your head numbered. We don't deserve his attention. We don't deserve his healing touch, but he's meek. He's gentle, he's compassionate. And when he sees the needy turn to him in faith, he never turns away. He can always be found. Salvation is open to all who come to him desperate for it. You have to be made desperate by your sin, but you seek, you will find. That's the spiritual lesson underlying these two accounts. You have here really a tale of two daughters, both precious in the sight of the Lord. Jairus' daughter, 12 years old, she was dying. Then this other woman, whom Christ calls daughter, she's effectively been dying since Jairus' daughter was born, 12 years. 
regarding this woman and Jairus himself, who's interceding for his daughter, that they couldn't be any more different. They're total contrast. One was a man, the other a woman. One was a synagogue ruler, the other a synagogue outcast. Jairus asked for help publicly, the woman asked for help privately. Jairus received help privately, the woman publicly. Jairus believed touch, the touch of Jesus would heal. The woman believed touching Jesus would heal. The list goes on. They're, they're so different in so many ways. But after 12 years, their stories converge in this moment because they both were made just completely desperate by their condition, hopeless. That desperation, though, as they saw Christ, sent them running to him. That he was their last, their only hope. But he could be found. He could be found. And he didn't turn them away. Both found hope and healing in Christ. He can always be found by those who call out to him. And the way these stories are sandwiched together leads us to believe that, that the middle point is the interpretive key, as is the case always with Hebrew keyism. That middle point or that high point, it's actually not the raising of Jairus' daughter to new life. That's, that is one of the punchlines. It's the display of Christ's power. But, but the middle point, it's when Jesus says to the first daughter, your faith has saved you. And that is how we too receive the healing we need for our souls. This is how you too must go to Jesus by faith, being made desperate over your sin. And there might be some in here this morning living very lonely lives because of sin. And I don't mean you're alone. You might have a ton of friends and family, but you, you know your sin, and sin isolates. Between you and God, between you and others, sin isolates. It brings shame. It makes you unclean. You have nowhere to turn. It's beyond human resources to resolve. You're ashamed to tell your spouse. You feel man's cruel judgment. Maybe you're starting to fear God's judgment, like, what will happen when I die? I can only say that I hope you become desperate over your own sin condition. Because one, there's nothing you can do about it. But two, such desperation is the birthing ground of true faith by which Christ can do something about it. And now you must see Jesus. He's a compassionate, accessible Savior. He can be found by all who seek him. He's not a celebrity, a ruler who... We can't be bothered by the people. Now seek him, you shall find him. Isaiah 55, 6 and 7 says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord. He will have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon If you are as eager to be saved as this woman was to be healed, and you go to Christ, you will be. And if just just a touch of his garment can heal the body, what can a full embrace of him do but nothing less of saving the soul? And so abide in Jesus by faith. That same word goes for believers here this morning who have been re-ensnared in sin and in shame, just deceived into tolerating secret sin, This Savior is still accessible to his sons and daughters. He stands ready to cleanse you, to wash your feet, to restore you. You must go to him. Time is up, so we'll finish verse 26. A quick last word. It simply says, this news spread throughout all that land. And a little understatement. 
But this becomes the theme of the chapter, as we'll finish next time. Jesus, as he continues to give more and more messianic signs, his fame grows and grows. We'll see more of that next time. But this is how it should be. Jesus should receive the fame. We receive the mercy, the life. He receives the fame. And if you have tasted and seen that the Lord is good, if you abide in him, if you've been raised up to new life with him, then give him the glory. We now live to spread his name throughout all the land, his name and his fame, not ours. Let that be our ultimate response. As we've known this Christ, let's give him the glory. Let's finish in a word of prayer. Our Father in heaven, we do bow before you this morning, giving your son Christ Jesus all the glory. We can do so, him being God the Son, worthy of our worship. From our lips, from our lives, our hearts, our hands, we we aim to give him the glory. For we were lost, and yet now we're found. We were blind, now we see. We were dead, more dead than that little girl. Yet in Christ, by his mercy, we now live. Thank you that we are free from the second death. And though we might taste the first, we all will be raised to new life everlasting. You've saved us from the greater death. We have already the down payment of life in the Spirit. If that doesn't encourage us, if that doesn't excite us, if that doesn't put a a smile on our face, convict us. We should be a a grateful, thankful people and then move to just spread, spread this news. The name and the fame of Jesus needs to go out throughout the land that others might hear. There are many, we know many, loved ones who are likewise sick, dying, not just physically, but spiritually, and they need the healing touch of the Savior. We can't give it to them, but open their eyes, convict them, and may we just show them He can be found. He's accessible by all who call on to his name. They can be saved. Work in us. Work in your people. But encourage us in the faith this morning to just go to Christ always. Depend on him. Give him the glory. We do that together. In Christ's name we pray.